Hey, you beautiful dice goblins, and welcome to the Goblins and Growlers podcast. If you like what you're hearing, come check us out over at patreon.com slash goblinsgrowlers, where you can find all original adventures, monsters, items, and traps, as well as bonus episodes for our actual play podcast, Quid Pro Roll, and so much more. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing and giving us a review over on Apple Podcasts. Especially early in the feed, subscriptions and reviews are super helpful for bringing new listeners our way. Thank you! Hey everybody, welcome to the Goblins and Growlers podcast. We're going to talk about uh, some giant robots today. Uh, my name is Brandon. Uh, I'm Way of Brandalore on Twitter. And I'm Josh Maltby at Black Cloak DM on Twitter. And, you know, anytime we sit down, Brandon, and we're going to talk about giant robots, I am a little bit surprised that it's not Transformers that we're going to be talking about, given your deep and abiding love for that series. Indeed. No, today we're going to be talking about D&D Vangelion, also known as uh, <laughs> Earthshaker, uh, a really weird 1985 module for second edition D&D uh, written by Zeb Cook. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Josh, did it you is, have a chance to read it? I I didn't read the whole thing. I'm, I've been a bad host. Um, I've been I've been very busy is the excuse I always use, but. There, it, I don't know that it. I don't know that I can keep applying that excuse because I'm basically always busy. So I really need to just do a better job of making time. Uh-huh. Um, in this situation, though, I did have a couple of things that stood out to me that were very exciting, uh, such as the table of mechanical operations for the giant machine, mm-hmm. which is amazing. <laughs> So just real quick, here's an image of the cover, which is basically why I love this so much. I want a poster of this that I can put up in my house, but it's just like a giant steam. You can see like the steam coming out of the robot and everything, and it's just beating up a castle. And I think that's fantastic. I don't I don't know if this is what you thought of as well when you first saw the image. Um, But for me, it looks like a giant Rock'em Sock'em robot is about to take that castle out. I did not think of that, but it does look exactly like a giant rock and talking robot. <laughs> but yeah, this adventure is just weird on like a number of levels because the the giant robot aspect of it is not the only like story thread that you can follow on this. And I mean, I look at that, I'm like, wh- why would you want... Why would you put a giant robot in your adventure and then have it not be the only thing that the party can go after? <laughs> um, but this is um, it's not like Expedition to Barrier Peaks weird or anything like that. It's just right. it, in the intro to it, when you're like reading through the like, this is how to run this adventure and blah, blah, blah. Because, again, you know, it was written in 85 for like second edition. So what in fifth edition they would probably take five paragraphs to say there are like two and a half pages on here but um it, it says like this is not a serious adventure it doesn't take itself seriously so you probably shouldn't too but basically it start it, it's for levels 18 to 20 first of all if that tells you anything mm-hmm. uh so it it's it's not babby's first robot adventure but it like the the plot involves the party being put in charge of like a noble's demands because the noble has to go out of town for some reason. Um, 
And so he's like, hey, I need you to take care of uh, take care of my holdings and everything. And so while he's gone, stuff comes up like there's uh, uh, like the chief magistrate comes in and starts saying like, oh, this guy's been accused of murder. You have to hear the evidence and decide a verdict like the cr- trial and chrono trigger, basically. Um, there's like one or two other like side things that you do. But then this um, this guy who comes into the um he comes into the castle acting like he's gonna sell you a monorail like he did to like north haverbrook or something like that (laughs) and uh he petitions the court for uh permission to hold an like a like a circus or fair event and just so happens it coincides with like you needing to do a um like a harvest festival uh or or like a, a harvest holiday for the for the peasants in the town so you're like great great this is fantastic he can he's like i can either charge admission or you can pay me ten thousand dollars whatever you want to do so the um so you're like yeah great this solves a problem that i was going to have to deal with so this is fine so uh he go he says cool he gives you a contract to sign and he goes away and he comes back uh well he doesn't come back you like three days later uh, you're like, oh, man, this festival is supposed to happen in like tomorrow and no tents have been set up. We don't even know where this guy is that he's like just steal our money. And then all of a sudden you start hearing this low rumbling coming your way. And like you look out the windows of the castle and cresting over the trees and everything like that is this giant robot that's walking <laughs> toward the town. And it causes an absolute panic because none of these people know what a kaiju is. Mm-hmm. And it, it comes into town. And everybody's panicking. Eventually, the guy, the um, the monorail salesman guy comes back and uh, he's like, no, 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 this is just this is one of the exhibits. This is, you know, the great earth shaker. And it's taller than the Eiffel Tower. The 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 book goes into a lot of like it spends a lot of time explaining how big this thing is. It's like basically it's saying, like, I really can't explain to you how big this thing you're not understanding it it's like when ron swanson's in the diner and he's like bring me all the bacon you have and the guy walks away and then ron calls him back he's like son i think you may have misunderstood me when i said bring me all the bacon you have i did not mean bring me a lot of bacon <laughs> i meant bring me all the bacon you have they got this so this giant robot is there and um like to give sort of an overview of the rest of the plot um it's one of the many wonders that this guy brings uh, to the uh, to this thing, like others include like a living Medusa. Real uh, quick, real quick on the on the size and scale conversation, there mm-hmm. is a map of the robot towards the back of the book that mm-hmm. shows the decks the decks of the Earth Shaker, and as part of that map, there is about the size of like its pinky toenail. Uh, is a tiny illustration of an elephant that says approximate height of an elephant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, I love that. It makes me so happy. Uh, but like some of the other uh, things that he's got at this thing, some like he has the immortal woman and then there's a sentence in the description that's like, she's supposedly immortal, but this is actually fake. Uh, like a, a folk dance troupe of wizards. Um a trio of clowns and tumblers and everything like that. So basically it's just like a supermarket parking lot carnival, but with a giant robot as part of it. And the robot is like a stronghold for these gnomes that live in it. Like nobody knows when this thing was built or why just that it was like, it was probably built by ancient gods or something like that. The gnomes moved in and they know how to work it and everything like that. 
it runs on coal um so it's the most west virginia of of <laughs> D, D monsters basically the party can either like take control of it or there's like uh, their npc villains who are trying to take control of it uh and if they get it then you have to like lure it places and chase it all over um and it, it, the, there's the whole map of like the demands and everything like that. And it has it has paths that the thing could follow and stuff that it can destroy because it weighs like 10,000 tons. So if it even comes close to stepping on something, it will destroy it. Oh, yeah. Um, and that, like it leaves the the endings kind of um, open a little bit because like there's an option for like if the bad guy takes it and steals it and just runs out of town with it uh if the party gets it and it's like you as you know you as the dm you probably don't want your party to have control over a giant robot no um, so uh, pretty much no matter what happens if the if it's not returned to like the carnival guy no matter what happens the thing is like scripted to basically fall apart and then, and then there's like all this description of like how much money you can get from all the scrap iron from it and everything <laughs> like that, which is very 2E to me. A very, very second edition absurd focus on numbers. But anyway, so the, basically the whole dungeon of the thing is just going through the many, many levels of this robot, you know, starting at like its foot or whatever and climbing all the way to the command deck at the top. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So real quick. Um, this being 2E, isn't that back in the day when you had an unlimited level cap? You only got abilities up to a specific, I think it was 20 still, but then mm -hmm. you could keep getting things like hit dice past that all the way up to like level 100 or some really wild nonsense. Or was that 1E? That might have been 1E. I'm not the best person to be authoritative on this because I haven't played 2E in a good long time on the order of decades. And the highest I ever got a character was, I think, level 11 or 12. And that was an elf that I had as a thief. But if I remember correctly, it was humans that didn't have a level cap to make up for the fact that they didn't have extra abilities and stuff. Oh, well, I, I could mean, be that, remembering that wrong, though. That could be the case. I just remember people talking about like, well, your druid is immortal and therefore can just keep leveling forever. Uh, well, <laughs> I, like I was sort of in my nascent child stages of D&D &D at the time, so I could be remembering wrong. I Honestly, I was more thinking about like if this is level 18 to 20 in today's terms, that's a really big deal because that's max level. Like you cannot get beyond that. But I think back in those days, you had the option of leveling up past that, in which mm -hmm. case this is like, oh, well, that's a really big adventure, but it's not as big as adventures can get, which is a really crazy thing to think about. On the order of like starting Final Fantasy four as just some dude on an airship, but ending it as <laughs> fighting like the incarnation of evil in the universe, like it's a sliding scale. Yeah, yeah, it's a sliding scale. I have noticed that Final Fantasy games in general tend to start you out as just some dude. And then ultimately you end up fighting like God, which is like, really, Final Fantasy? <laughs> How many randos are going to end up fighting supreme beings in your campaigns? What's happening? So speaking of fantasy... Um, let's talk about using robots in fantasy <laughs> and what your feeling of like, uh, how do you feel about like technology like this sort of infecting a, uh, a, an elves in the forest style fantasy adventure? 
I mean, I think I think that really depends, right? You can have an adventure that's very steampunk and very high magic and very, I don't know, kind of almost almost Victorian era where mm -hmm. it's not it's not modern, but it's not quite like medieval, like knights and dragons and the like. I think Eberron does a great job of this. I think it for for those of you who are traveling around in the webcomic circles, Girl Genius is one that I followed for a really long time. I think they do a really good job of this. There are a lot of great examples of high fantasy taking steampunk elements and turning it into something new and interesting. I think though you kind of have to choose. I don't think you can have super steampunk elements like this and then also have it be medieval knights and dragons and wizards and etc. Like you can still do magic and you can still do people who fight with swords, etc, etc. But there comes a point where it's like, well, if they've got steam power, then they've probably also got gunpowder. And if they've got gunpowder, then they've got cannons. If they've got cannon, like, you know, this is something I think about a lot in the frame of world building, because a lot of people are like, well, I don't know if I should allow gunpowder. And when you find out that large scale sailing vessels for doing things like taking over uh, whole other countries, like huge, huge armadas of ships basically did not exist before gunpowder did. And certainly like we have things like ball bearings. So it's like if you're going to outlaw gunpowder, you got to have a really good reason for it, I think. So I don't know. It's it's when you're when you're building that world, you have to <laughs> get your robots out of my fantasy adventure. Um, when you're building it, I think you have to decide, like, how advanced is my world going to be allowed to be? How limited are things going to be because of things like magic? You know, people may not think to develop something like gunpowder because the spell fireball exists, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And that's like that's like a lot deeper of a world building question there that's like that's like getting into sort of the string theory of how your world is created and like looking into cause and effect and stuff like that yeah and yeah i'm the wrong i'm the wrong person really to like talk about that kind <laughs> of situation just because i i am probably the least doctrinaire person about a fantasy setting that there is um with i'm i'm writing one right now where the party has to use a smartphone app as for like a ride share kind of thing uh-huh Yes. Uh, so which I think is beautiful. I don't mind it. I think it's I think it's a nice way to just sort of like from from a, like a GM perspective. It's a nice way to sort of shake you out of uh, a rut, like a fantasy rut. Like it's an it's a nice way to introduce new things. And who knows where that could go from? Because like you were saying, like, oh, OK, well, they've got steam power. So maybe like this robot was built thousands of years ago by some like ancient godlike civilization or something. And there people are just now discovering steam power with it, like because of it. And they're building like small steam engines and things like that. And how is that affecting the world? How's it affecting the economy? Um, like labor, things like that, uh, with them being able to do stuff with steam power. But I think, I think Warcraft actually does this really beautifully because they have characters that have guns as a thing that they use. Um, but they're all, they're all muskets. They're all mm -hmm. like stuff the barrel and load the pellets and then you fire. And if it's wet, it's useless. And, you know, obviously things are going to develop beyond that at some point, but 
I don't know. I think I think that's a really it's a really beautiful way to handle that because then guns are guns exist and they are powerful. Yes, but if a gun gets wet, then all of a sudden it's like, man, I wish I had a sword. <laughs> so it sounds to me, based on what you were saying a little while ago, that maybe like the train in Eberron is just a little bit too much for you. I think for me personally, it really depends on what I'm trying to run. If I'm mm -hmm. trying to run a very like high fantasy, I mean, for Pete's sake, we put a theme park in our game world mm -hmm. that was all about like animatronics and uh, a lich lair. So <laughs> I, I don't think I've got any room to be like, I think trains are too much like. I, uh, you know, <laughs> that's too much for me, young man. <laughs> I have I have no room to criticize anyone who wants to do stuff like that. More of the point I was trying to make was. I think I think I am there with you where I'll mix in whatever technology elements feel goofy and fun at the time, and I won't give too much thought to the sorts of consequences that may have for my world overall because I can usually come up with some kind of really nonsensical reason as to why someone could be like, well, if we've developed cannons and this sort of thing and this sort of thing, then based on our own timeline, we should have developed tanks by now. I'll be like, oh, well, yes, but tanks are vulnerable to heat metal, so they don't like them. <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, like I'm, I'm going to bring up Final Fantasy four again and people probably who've played it probably know why I am. But like, you know, it, it it involves a giant robot as well, where you have to go in and work your way through the different floors of the robot to defeat the robot. It's called the Giant of Babel. And it's one of like the late stage bosses in the game before you have to go to the moon and fight the, you know, incarnation of evil in the universe. That's but, amazing. Um, it's just so out of place. Like that game very quickly switches from. Uh, like a fantasy adventure with uh, just magic and swords and everything like that to all this lost moon technology. Like there's a spaceship and then you have to go underground and there are tanks and you've got these airships and everything like that. Oh my God. It's just interesting. That was the first thing. Cause you know, I played that in 92 when it first came out. Uh, when I finally discovered this module uh, several years ago, that was the first thing I thought of. Cause it's like, Oh, a robot in a fantasy adventure setting. And then I'm reading through it and I'm like, Oh, you have to go into the robot and fight things. And there's a scientist and stuff like that. And then you saw so, that it was pre created seven years previous to final fantasy four. Mm -hmm. And you were like, Hey, yeah. And actually like, you know, <laughs> You know, D&D &D wasn't popular in Japan back then, and it's still not super popular in Japan now. So there's like zero chance there was any kind of influence there. There's probably some well, other cultural thing. Well, that... I don't know. Like You think about people doing high fantasy stuff and especially mm -hmm. a group like Final Fantasy, who is very clearly influenced by other cultures around the world. I could absolutely see the nerds at Square or was it it was Square back then, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Squaresoft back then. So I could absolutely see the nerds at Squaresoft being like, oh, my God, have you guys seen the latest Dungeons and Dragons adventure out of the Americas? Right. <laughs> like we we get all excited about anime and manga and things like that. I'm absolutely certain there were some nerds at Squaresoft that were really excited about Western culture stuff back then. Now, I can't draw a straight line from one to the other, obviously. I would love to be on board with that way of thought, but that was 36 <laughs> years ago. And 
and like i really doubt there was any kind of crossover on that kind of stuff like tsr had offices in the uk and they had their offices in like uh, like wisconsin but uh that was about it i think i heard that like i read the other day that actually like even today like the most popular tabletop role-playing game in japan is call of cthulhu really yeah i think it just has to do with just preferences on horror and things like that like if you think about like the ring and stuff like that and how popular that is over there that makes a little bit of sense i think yeah yeah i could see that there's Mm -hmm. also i don't know i think existential dread makes a lot of sense as a tabletop system where D is all about like oh you are a big powerful hero and i think japan has plenty of that with like the entire shonen genre mm-hmm. i mean also like japan has a very very long history of giant robots going back <laughs> going back this like true. to ultra to ultraman and before um you know like you you have a point. It's entirely possible that Zeb Cook was influenced by Japanese media and that uh, Final Fantasy IV was also influenced by Japanese media. I wasn't thinking about that on scale, but yeah, like Astro Boy. Yeah, had giant Johnny Sacco and his Johnny Sacco and his giant robot. Yeah. Uh, Super Sentai started in like 1975. Back then it was just Sentai. The first two Sentai series was um, they just had like they didn't have a giant transforming robot. They just had like a big battle station kind of thing. The first like transforming like humanoid robot was Battle Fever J that came out in like 1979. So uh, and, you know, and even then, like at that point, like stuff like Astro Boy was a lot more popular. So it's very, very it's I think it's much more likely that it was Japanese influence for the giant robot on this. Yeah, that's fair. I wasn't I wasn't quite thinking about that degree of things. Yeah, you're, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. But uh, uh, and like talking just a little bit about Zeb Cook, the writer for this, like he is probably one of the m- most accomplished uh, like tabletop role playing game, like writers and creators and designers of all time. He was the lead designer for second edition, but we can forgive him for that. He was uh, the creator of Planescape because somebody was like, I think this this was on Wikipedia and I read it a long time ago, but it's like somebody at the company like gave him like the manual of uh, it was like a monster manual for like extra planar type stuff or just generally a manual of the outer planes. And somebody was like, this could be a really cool setting. So he picked it up and he was just like, okay. And he created Planescape just sort of out of nothing. Oh my Um, God. After like, after um, TSR, after he got out of there, I think he left in like the early nineties, the mid nineties, something like that. And he's switched over to doing like electronic media and stuff. So he was one of the designers for fallout two. And um, I don't know if you remember like the city of heroes. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. He was, I think, the lead designer for one of the City of Villains expansions that they did for that. Yeah. And (laughs) an interesting little footnote that I like to point out is that he he ended up having to write for TSR a like a module based on Conan the Barbarian, not the Conan RPG that TSR put out a D&D second edition module on Conan the Barbarian. And it's just funny because I just imagine like in an office type scenario, somebody comes in there is like, this is your assignment. And he's like, man, I got to do this. They're like, yeah, sorry. 
it's a little bit i imagine one of those where it's like well you still have to pay the bills zeb yeah you know he's he's like 87 years old now oh my god i wonder if he's still doing anything because i know for a lot of these guys you do that for long enough and it basically it it consumes your world like i wouldn't be shocked to find that you and i at 80 years old are still like roaming around D forums being like back in my day initiative was handled so much worse and the interesting thing to me uh this is uh, this is the first thing i thought of about his age was um uh he's 87 and like doing the math like he was reaching his greatest success when he was about my age <laughs> like doing all this like super cool stuff that he ended up doing so that is both hopeful and sad for me (laughs) i mean uh in in fairness to you he was breaking through where you Mm -hmm. have to break out yeah (laughs) (laughs) so Um, the the market's a little more saturated these days yeah yeah exactly exactly um so so what would you what would you take from earthshaker to use in uh something else Uh, And you can't just and you can't just say a giant robot. (laughs) (laughs) So a couple of things, actually, I really like the idea of mechanisms that are piloted by multiple creatures and Mm -hmm. having that like you could do a very Voltron esque kind of situation where a team of gnomes has come together to create some sort of like mechanical monstrosity and the team of gnomes operate it, and then the party might be able to figure out how to operate it, but odds are good they'll never be able to figure out how to maintain it unless they themselves have, like, gnomish engineering levels of expertise. So, Mm -hmm. like, the concept of adding something like a tank, like a a single-use tank that these gnomes design and operate, and then the party is like, Oh, well, that doesn't look so threatening because it's like a large like pachyderm or something. And then the trunk moves forward and it fires like a rocket at them and then being like, whoa, you know, something something like that could be amazing. I love the idea of having a piloted device by multiple people that then is a is a foe that you have to deal with somehow. I like when you said single use tank, like the (laughs) first place my brain. Fires one round and then you throw it away. Yeah, my first thought was like, okay, well, you've got this. But if it gets rained on, it dissolves. So (laughs) better make it good. I think my favorite tiny little aspect of this that I would want to try to steal uh, is part of the way the gnomes and the carnival make money in this is they offer tours of the inside of the Earthshaker. Obviously, people try to ask them questions and everything. But like the management of the Earthshaker is very wary of people trying to figure out its secrets so they can take control of it so they've developed there's like a whole chart in here that you're supposed to like roll on for basically star trek style techno babble oh my god because if somebody's like hey gnome you know what is this thing and then you roll on the thing and the gnome's like oh that's the johnson rod and it controls you know the steam pressure to the wibbly (laughs) wheel and all this stuff just so they can act like they're explaining it but not give away any secrets of this thing i feel like that's particularly ingenious because your average dm is not going to have the sort of technical know-how to be able to describe the internal workings of a giant machine. Yeah, it's it's 
it makes sense in the story and it's a great hand up for anybody running this game to try to make it seem more of like a real living world oh my god it's so good yeah and another cool thing about this is it's got some good like prop work in it uh because like i said it's a carnival uh and uh it's got in the book it's got different like flyers that are done in a very like 19th century style with all kinds of different typefaces and everything like advertise oh the great earth shaker and the immortal woman well and i haven't read enough 2e adventures to know if this is the case or not but the style of the layout and the print and things like that all looks like an old timey newspaper. Most most modules and releases for 2E kind of look about the same like that. It's usually like two wide columns on eight and a half by 11 or something like that. Min like it's all usually all black and white. Um, illustrations look much more like woodcuts than, you know, full illustrated uh, depth of color type things. It's what I remember. So I sort of have a like a nostalgic look at stuff like that. It's it's very simplistic. Any of the stuff that like we do for Goblins and Growlers, I usually end up just trying to ape that style again because it's what I remember and it's what I'm used to. But I'm I'm a huge fan of handouts and stuff like that. So oh, absolutely. I, I really I really appreciate a well done handout that serves no purpose other than just for like give it to the party for like uh, give it to the players at your table rather for like a minute. You know, and you've already told them everything that's on it. It's just something to help immerse them in the flavor mm -hmm. a little bit. Anyway, that's Earthshaker and it's great and it's weird and it's a giant like robot powered by coal. <laughs> um, oh, the other thing about this is there I talked about like the different ways it can end. There are also different endings depending on how much the robot has destroyed the land. Like <laughs> like the Duke comes back and if uh, the robot's been stopped, but everything's pretty much otherwise cool, he's he's thankful um, if the robot's been stopped, but a little bit's been destroyed, he's like less thankful, but he's not mad. If he comes back and everything's just been just like completely torn apart, he's furious. He exiles you from the kingdom. You're never allowed to come back. Oh, my uh, God. <laughs> the, it, sa it says that the party has to leave quickly. Otherwise, the peasants will like overtake them and tar and feather them. <laughs> 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 but I think that's about all we got for Earthshaker. I don't I don't know that I would try to tar and feather in a level 18 to 20 party. That seems dangerous. It would need to be like like tar plus 10. <laughs> or f use feathers of tarring on them. Oh, there you go. There you go. That's the solution. Yeah. Why don't you, you, you should work on that magic item. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm uh, Brandon Way of Brandalore on Twitter. And I'm Josh Black Cloak DM on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you on the next Goblins and Growlers podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hey, folks. As a note, we're planning on releasing episodes of GGP bi-weekly for the time being. But we've got plenty of content to go weekly. We just don't have time. If we were able to get the Patreon a bit higher, we could pay a part-time audio engineer to edit these episodes for us. And in turn bring you content every week. Go check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash goblinsgrowlers to see what that goal looks like. Thanks so much.